0: Hey everybody, Rob North here from the Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades podcast. Just saying that if you like what we do and you'd like to support us financially and get access to exclusive content, you can go to patreon.com slash trrpod. As always, hold fast and on with the show. We went to the Renaissance Festival. We sure did.
1: <laughs> we is a it a Renaissance time. Festival or is it a Renaissance Fair? Because I feel like it's two different things, but I, I don't know what the I, difference is.
0: I don't know. I've heard I don't them, know I've I've heard them referred to
1: as both. I just don't. I don't know.
0: I don't know. Renfest, Renfair. I've called it both. I don't know. I, somebody's gonna pop up and go. Well, actually, yeah, I was gonna say you know,
1: we're gonna get. There's, there's opinions
0: without a doubt. But it Google is one that right now. It is so fun. It's so. It, are you going to be that, well, actually guy right now? I just
1: want to find out.
0: All right, I'll let you carry Go, on. go ahead. No, we, we still but got no, to it's, it's this. This yeah. is
1: my project for this episode. Oh, like I whenever know. I played uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon with a man's asshole. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Alistair Crowley's butthole?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you guys haven't listened to
0: that episode, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Uh, spoiler alert, you can play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon.
1: Who did we, <laughs> who the hell did we try to connect
0: um, Ozzy Osbourne. Well, yeah, Ozzy <laughs> Osbourne. I I went through the. Um,
1: you want to? I took the Jack route.
0: Parsons route and uh, yeah, through that's right. you know uh, through elron uh, Hubbard. But that's not really important right now. What's important is the Ren Fair. There's beer. There's turkey legs. There and is all those things exist.
1: Then, right? get, I'm good.
0: Corsets smashing, big old buoys up into chins.
1: Mm-hmm. It,
0: Chris and I look great in them. If you're wondering. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's. I, we highly, highly recommend it. Sorry we don't have something more exciting to talk about. But, yeah, it was a good time.
1: It's very fun.
0: Yeah. Big thanks to our friends The Crack who performed. Um, I know they had a live album recording last Thursday. Sorry we had to miss it, but other we, duties called. We had called. prior engagements. Yeah, speaking of prior engagements, um, a huge thanks to everybody who uh, who made it out for, first, the blood drive that Chris and I, Helped work with our good friend Charles Boot Jetter Mm -hmm. up in Oil City. It was apparently, according to the American Red Cross, the largest blood drive in Oil City's history. We far surpassed our goal. Turnout was great. We were part of the Oil City High School homecoming parade.
1: We sure were. Even the dog was there.
0: Yeah, even Jack, our canine outreach specialist, was there in costume. We were marching in full renegade battle rattle. And man, you want to talk a town that takes homecoming seriously, My. God.
1: Yeah, it's bananas. And I didn't realize that uh, they combined two schools. Yeah. So it was a double parade. But well, it was like, a
0: town of about 10,500 people. I think there were 10,000 people. It
1: there. was everyone.
0: Everybody It was came. everybody.
1: If I would have known, I would have peeled off the parade and just taken whatever I wanted from all of Oil City. Because all the police <laughs> were there, too. Yeah.
0: It was, it was a hell of a thing. Oil City's fun, too, because right, right in the middle of town, they have this little plinth with this massive artillery piece from the Second World War on it.
1: Any town... It, like in in Pennsylvania, I'll say like you don't even have to go north of Interstate eighty, No. but there's just a giant tanker gun in, just in the middle of all. Of Every
0: it. town has a town cannon,
1: and I think it's just in case Canada ever tries to start some shit.
0: I saw a documentary about that mm-hmm. South Park: Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Yep, yeah, um, yeah. So thanks Canada. to everybody who came out to that
1: blood drive. Canada. Also, a huge,
0: huge thanks to everybody who came out uh, yesterday for. a uh, a tailgate we had in memorial of our buddy, Jason Rollison. Um, yeah, we, we did delay recording a week. We were about set to record last Monday and we got word about five minutes before we were going to record that Jason Rollison lost his battle with, uh, with cancer. Um, yeah, big up, Steve, buddy. We, you know, we hope we, uh, we hope we did you right yesterday. It was a, yeah, it was a great turnout. Everybody was very, very generous with, uh, with helping to make uh, make the lives of, of his his wife Jessica and their kids a little easier right now, so that was that was a hell of a thing yesterday, and it was it was a great time, great party, uh, great hanging out with everybody on the rotunda and everybody who came up to see us during the game yesterday. So uh, just a big big thank you from both of us and from our friend Jojo Vaney, who you heard on part one, who who joined us for that. A huge thanks for everybody who was a part of that. Um, if you would like to make a donation after the fact, uh, Jessica has asked us that you make your donations directly to the American Cancer Society, so please do take that into consideration. That being said, let's get on with the episode, because today we are in part two of our series on King John the First of England, Bad King John, and he's-
1: Where did we leave off last time?
0: Well, so where we left off in the last episode, we covered John's troubled childhood and his tumultuous family history. He was originally the discarded child but gained some favor from his asshole father, Henry II, but dealt with scheming and rebellious older brothers who were constantly at war with their father and each other, having his mother imprisoned and being given the opportunity for command and power in Ireland and muffing it up royally. I realized what I just said. (laughs) And uh, no pun intended there. But yeah, so we're going to pick up When John has just been crowned the King of England. uh, Let's go back to our sources for this series. The first is King John, Treachery and Tyranny in Medieval England by Mark Morris. Again, Mark Morris is one of Britain's preeminent medievalists. The guy is a font of knowledge. He's written many, many books about different periods in England's medieval history, and they're all fantastic. This guy really does his homework. We also have The Plantagenets by Dan Jones. Again, an excellent book that I highly recommend. I also recommend his book on the War of the Roses. I think I mentioned that last time. And, of course, all sorts of various medieval manuscripts. And some of them are dense and thick and really, really hard to parse what's real from what isn't. But they are a lot of
1: fun to read. I think I'm just going to start my band and call it the Plantagenets. (laughs) I think we're going to do big in Brooklyn. I'm going to fill the void that... Uh, what the hell are the, the that Mumford and Sons left behind when they quit making music with whistling <laughs> in it? There's <laughs> just gonna the, be lots whist- of whistling, and we won't have a drummer, but we will have a drum. Various whistling and banjos and a drum
0: operated by foot, and lots of hey, uh, lots of that.
1: Did you Shit. know that it was so popular for a while? And think of like any Katy Perry song and all those like the the hey ho and all the songs whistling. There was always a oh oh oh. It's some point oh the millennial in that, whoa. It's called the millennial yeah. whoop. The millennial whoop—that's which they is call it. unbelievable, <laughs> and I hate it. Yes, I really hate it. Yeah, I—I I think ever since that became a thing, people stopped doing it, which is good.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I'm glad millennial whoop realized the error in one ways.
1: So speaking of uh, millennials, or
0: this takes <laughs> us to the millennium. Let's cast our minds back most of the way through the previous millennium. So when we last left John Plantagenet, it's 1199. He's 32 years old. And had just had his older brother, Richard the Lionheart, die after being shot by a crossbow. The Angevin Empire is at its height, with the Kingdom of England in control of most of the British Isles, as well as just about every part of the western half of France. But, you okay?
1: <laughs> I have no idea. Did you just see what happened? No. <laughs> Like, I, I don't know if I had, like, a cramp or something, but my entire arm just, like, exploded and then went back to normal. I, under,
0: I understand this is Holy great on an shit, audio that medium. That hurt. I'm sorry. I watched Chris's eyes get wide, and he's looking at his it own arm. It so
1: goddamn bad.
0: You were looking at your arm like John Hurt looked at his chest in Alien.
1: Yeah, pretty much. You were oh, so was, It just worried. moved. It looked like, the, it was like, it looked like <laughs> Alien. I was like, what the hell? Okay, that was weird. Anyway. Oh, well, that was a fun little interview. Yeah, anyway, Philip Plantagenet. Yeah,
0: so... <laughs> John wrong wrong. Oh no, right. Wrong sorry, I'm thinking. Oh of, man, if this is, of at, this is where we're at, this is going to be a long series. So, yeah, so England is control of, is in control of most of the British Isles as well as about half of France and it's all at risk at this point. Richard who at the end of his life appeared to have been recognizing John as his presumptive heir did not leave clear-cut instructions as to the royal succession and we're left with a conflicting school of thought within the Angevin empire as to who Richard's true successor should be. Now, the English theory of law favored John as Richard's brother and the descendant who is closest in age, and he's also Henry II's only surviving son, whereas the law in most of the French territories of the empire, which were generally the wealthier and more influential, favored the 12-year-old Arthur of Brittany, the only son of John's late older brother Geoffrey, who was also supported by Philip II, the powerful king of France. Now, John moved quickly, depositing his brother's body at Fontevraud Abbey in the heart of Arthur's supporters' territory, which is a, a, a power move, and swearing a public oath before the archbishop there to uphold Richard's will faithfully, spoiler, he wouldn't, and to uphold and preserve the laws and customs of the people he would rule over. Another spoiler, he wasn't going to do that
1: either. Yeah, it doesn't quite shake out. I mean, he might have thought that he yeah.
0: did. And he would do this in return for the recognition of those present as his brother's successor. But things didn't get any easier. Arthur's supporters set about trying to secure castles and territory, and Philip of France immediately launched an invasion of Normandy. Uh, It's worth pointing out uh, from the other direction of the more famous invasion of Normandy. This one came from inside. Mm -hmm. Uh, The town of Le Mans sided with Arthur and rebelled, and John and his attendants were forced to ride 50 miles in a single day in order to reach friendly castles to to gather support and troops. Now, almost caught in a pincer movement between Arthur's and Philip's forces, John left enough men to defend Normandy and retreated in secret to England, where he gathered to his bosom his supporters among the English nobles and convened a conference with some of the more rebellion-minded English barons. Now, John swore an oath to uphold their positions and lands and give each man his due in return for fealty. Third spoiler alert, 0 for 3. And on the 27th of May, 1199, John is finally crowned King of England, At Westminster Abbey, anointed with holy oil and swearing to protect and honor the church, abolish bad laws, and replace them with good ones, do good justice to his subjects, and uphold the lands of the Kingdom of England. If you're keeping count, we're now going to be going 0 for 7 here. Everything that I've talked about. A lavish banquet followed uh, where some 21 fat oxen were roasted.
1: That's a lot of people, man. That's a lot of food.
0: It uh, said, uh, the the chronicle I found that in uh, did not set any mention of side dishes. So that's the only oh, that's detail I can give you. Yeah. But I mean,
1: you don't want to fill up on sides or bread.
0: No, you don't. So John immediately set about keeping the promise to maintain English territory by agreeing to cede the county of Northumbria to the king of Scotland, William the Lion. So immediately failing there. One assumes he does, the, does this in return for his recognition as legitimate king of England and not making trouble while John was dealing with his enemies in France. He never actually went through with it, and when he was returned to France to regain the initiative against his foes, he still had Scottish envoys trailing him the whole way, threatening an invasion from the north if he didn't follow through. Now, having gathered an army, John makes a canny move to shift the balance of power in his favor and met with the counts of Flanders and Bologna, securing an alliance against Philip with both of them, and with both sides now evenly matched, what threatened to be an all-out attack on John now turns into a continuous low-intensity series of border skirmishes. Finally, in January 1200, the Pope himself said enough and personally intervened, convening a meeting between the two kings. It took a while to hash things out, but eventually the Treaty of <clears throat>
1: Goulet <laughs> created an
0: official state of peace between John and Philip. Yeah, the Treaty of Goulet. Philip would recognize John as Richard's heir. It's Robert
1: Goulet's ancestral home. Eh, one wonders. We should probably do a podcast It's a, It's a fairly... It's a fairly French name, Robert de Goulet. I'm doing Treaty of Robert Goulet as my note.
0: Okay, noted. (laughs) No, so Philip would recognize John as Richard's heir and the legitimate king and respect his French possessions, and in return, all John had to do was completely turn on his new allies in Flanders and Bologna and recognize Philip's overlordship of his lands in France, as well as paying Philip 20,000 marks of silver. Now, in terms of national income, this is the equivalent of $60 billion today.
1: Not bad. That is
0: a big payday.
1: You're talking Amazon bucks.
0: Yeah. Abandoning the longstanding policy of French containment, John earned the disrespectful title of soft sword from some chroniclers, both contrasting his behavior with the more aggressive Richard, and perhaps implying that he couldn't quite fly his flag at full mast, if you know what I mean.
1: Yikes. Boy, I tell you what, history's not been kind of this guy. It really hasn't. <laughs> when history is written by the victors, boy did they kick him right in the teeth.
0: Yeah. So John now has true peace for the first time of king in England and wasted no time at all coming up with a plan to ruin it. You see, John had been married to Isabella of Gloucester, the daughter of one of his most prominent barons, but set his sights on the 14-year-old Isabella of Angoulême. Now, John had his marriage annulled by the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was also his chancellor, on the grounds that they were too closely related, which happened a lot in among
1: medieval nobles. Yeah, it, this... And the fact that she was, like, 13 really wasn't yeah. that, that abstract. No, that was, mean, pretty, no point, that was pretty I common. mean, by some point, you got to figure some of these people are marrying nobles that are, like, 9 Mm-hmm. So, I mean, at this point, old John's into older women. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're in, like, bring him young level of... Uh, yeah.
1: Oh, God. Young girls. And, like, John, how old was John at the time?
0: Uh, 30... He was going to say, he was, this was almost He would have right? been He would have been 33, 34. Okay, so a little
1: younger than yeah. I anticipated. But, yeah, that's... Yikes! Oof. Gah.
0: Yeah, yeah, so, yeah,
1: some of uh, some of the shit that we yeah. cover in these podcasts don't really translate. Yeah. So,
0: so John gets his marriage annulled, and he conveniently manages by rid of his chancellor to keep Isabella of Gloucester's lands in his possession, which was not supposed to be the way things were done. But there was another problem with this plan. Isabella of Angoulême was already betrothed to a noble named Hugh de Lusignan a member of an important French clan that held significantly uh, strategic lands within John's realms. Now, instead of arranging some sort of deal or compensation to alleviate this threat to the interests of the Lusignons, John went ahead and basically said, I'm the king, I do what I want, and dissolved Hugh and Isabella's engagement, managing to publicly insult the entire Lusignan clan repeatedly in court while he did it. Soon after, the 34-year-old king married the 14-year-old girl. Ugh. The Lusignans then went to <laughs> went over to Philip of France, and in twelve oh two, Philip summoned John to his court in Paris to answer for his actions, citing their agreement under the
1: Treaty of Goulet. What was the the Saturday Night Live bit where it was all the Goulets doing a oh, a music, oh the wow. Pirates of Penzance? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! If you, if you haven't watched that one, just watch go ahead it. and just go ahead and Google that. The uh, <laughs> the reviews at the end are, are absolutely the best part. Oh, and if you it can never, it never seemed to dawn on Robert Goulet that he was playing a romantic part across his daughter. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, ironically, that's that's pretty uh, yeah, not too far off, not too far off from uh, medieval medieval royalty. Yeah, uh, so while uh, Philip is technically John's feudal lord in the region in which the Lusignans live. And John was obligated to obey, he refused to show up, citing that as Duke of Normandy, he was not obligated under an old feudal tradition to come to the French court. John responds by declaring John in breach of his feudal responsibilities and reassigns all of John's lands in France to Arthur of Brittany's control. Arthur of Brittany, of course, if you'll remember, being John's rival for the succession. Soon after, he marshaled an was army.
1: The, I love that he did that, but I mean, what was the reason other than like. Basic pettiness for giving it to Arthur. I mean, just because he's second in in line, I get. I don't know if there was another I reason. Do, I don't think it was. I just don't think he liked him. Yeah. Well, no, it was. I like... mean, it, Philip Augustus was his. It was his rival. Yeah. Well, I think and that's what, what Philip a was doing funny slap in the face.
0: I think what Philip was doing was he was basically looking at John and saying, "Okay, you want to fuck with me now? Well, let me show you what I can do." Yeah. Remember that kid you don't like who was going to take the throne from you? Well, now he's got half your lands anyway.
1: Yeah, now he's richer.
0: Yeah. So, soon after, Philip marshals an army and launches a fresh attack on John's French lands, soon joined by Arthur and the Lusignons, wiping away this new piece after less than two years. So, John is forced to adopt a defensive posture in his new war, but one of his commanders, William de Roche, made a bold attack south into the Lusignons' lands and managed to capture the entire rebel leadership, including the 15-year-old Arthur of Brittany. Now, despite this victory, John's position soon became very tenuous due to his raising of taxes to fund his war chest and his overall truly shitty treatment of his best allies, particularly the guy who just won him this big victory, William DeRoche. We have to realize, John was not nice to anybody.
1: Not particularly, no. Even the
0: people who were on his side, he mm-hmm. made them hate him. All of them. It, it Like, working for this guy was... Apparently he his favorite hobby in court was to shit on people at banquets and in holding court he would just the way
1: he kind of conducted himself he was was, always almost Roman. Yeah. Just in in like just the way he behaved around other people. Well he was always
0: in roast mode, apparently. Yeah. (laughs) He was always crapping on people. So in addition to treating his allies like shit, he abandoned the normal chivalric principles of being magnanimous to ones defeated enemies and kept the captured rebel leaders in such wretched conditions that in less than a month, 22 of them died. Soon, De Roche and many of John's other Norman nobles abandoned him and sided with Philip, which caused Brittany to rise in fresh revolt, and now John is pressed in on three sides. So by 1203, John's position was so bad that he decided to carry out one of his most infamous acts and had his nephew Arthur transferred from Falaise Castle to Rouen under the captivity of a man named William de Breos, John's most, most ruthless and bloodthirsty henchman. Now, this was the guy who did all of John's dirty work for him. In a time when defeated nobles, especially family members, were meant to be treated with honor and dignity, we don't know what happened for sure, but we can say for certain that by the middle of 1203, Arthur's dead. Now, it's possible that he died of typhus, cholera, or some other disease caught from being Uh, from being kept in squalid conditions, unbefitting of his rank. But some say that John ordered he be removed from any royal bloodline by having him blinded and castrated. And these injuries killed him. Others say it was John himself who did the deed, beating Arthur to death in a drunken rage with a pewter chalice on Easter Sunday, then tying a heavy rock to his body and tossing it in the River Seine.
1: That one's 100% total bullshit. It, yeah. It's it's one hundred percent token. It's like, a great it's a great story. But, the only reason why yeah. that's a story is because John's dead. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's, you know, another one is and, and I said I would try to take counterpoint to some mm-hmm. of the shit that John did. Um Henry II did the same exact thing. Yeah, and whenever you had like you know a son of a prince or whatever, they were blinded, they were castrated. That's what nobility did. It doesn't make John worse for doing it, and there's no evidence to support that he did actually kill Arthur. But Arthur was also the kid that was placed at the head of a rebellion against him. Yeah. So, I mean, if he wanted to have him executed, I get it. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't want him around either. Of course, even though all was the chivalric like, principles was, of what the time. fifteen when he died, sixteen yeah, was 15, when he died,
0: maybe sixteen. Yeah, and of course, all the chivalric principles of the time say that if you capture an enemy, even if it's somebody who's risen in rebellion to you against you, and they are of noble rank. You are to keep them in honorable and comfortable captivity mm-hmm. until they can either A, be ransomed, somebody can buy their freedom, or you would make a peace agreement. And John was not great about this. No,
1: he sure wasn't.
0: So, another, uh, there's still another story. Again, the veracity of this is probably not very good, but it has William de Breos raping Arthur and injuring him so badly he died. News of Arthur's death, whilst in captivity, caused outrage throughout Western Europe, further eroding John's support from his own barons and causing his enemies to redouble his efforts against to their efforts against him. Now, John's position in his war against Philip continues to rapidly deteriorate. More of his barons left his cause after Arthur's death. Philip makes significant advances. He captures the powerful fortresses at Caen, Evranches, and Chateau Gaillard in ra- rapid succession and many of the mercenaries that John had hired from Flanders had not been paid, causing them to abandon their campaign against Philip and launch their own attacks on John's territories in order to plunder and actually get something for their time. Now, in March 1204, another blow was delivered to John when his mother, the great Eleanor of Aquitaine, you can listen to our first the first part of this series to learn a little bit more about Eleanor, died at the age of 82, which is very, very that's, old for uh, medieval yeah, times. Yeah, that's incredibly
1: old for you know, the, the yeah. 1200s
0: threatening to unravel John's alliances in Aquitaine and Anjou, both large, wealthy, and powerful regions. Most of John's few remaining supporters abandoned the fight, and by August, John had retreated back across the English Channel, and Philip had taken possession of Normandy, Anjou, and Poitou, leaving only Aquitaine in the possession of the Kingdom of England. He's now lost three-quarters of his territories on the French side of the Channel. In less than two years, John has managed to lose 70%, of his territories in France, including the ancestral homeland of his entire dynasty. Now John spent most of 1205 securing England against a French invasion, and actually managed to enact some effective reforms in the middle of fighting a war, including establishing a structure for the formation of local militias, building a strong and capable force of siege engineers and professional crossbowmen, something that hadn't been seen in England yet, and established a significant permanent navy for the first time since Alfred the Great, some 300 years before. Now John's actions to regain his lost lands over the next few years we can describe as, let's say, predictable. John is constantly trying to secure alliances that would redress the balance of power against Philip, who by this point would be, he'd become known as Philip Augustus, Philip the Great, for his victories in regaining lost French territories. He would form this plan and that, putting together invasion forces, to take back his French possessions, and they would all end up either being defeated, they would stall out in ineffective campaigning and maneuvering and be forced to withdraw, or have their efforts fall apart due to unrest among the barons. John also managed to pick a fight with Alfonso VIII, the king of Castile in northern Spain, and he almost lost Aquitaine, but caught a lucky break when Alfonso's nobles cut the campaign short in a move similar to what happened to John all the time.
1: Yeah, pretty much. It's... The dude runs into... Uh, he runs into both kinds of luck. Yeah. That's one thing I will definitely say. The one thing that I learned about him is that. And, I mean, you got to figure... Philip Augustus is probably the most accomplished leader of the Middle Ages.
0: At, at least at, this, at yeah. this time.
1: Yeah. So, I you mean, know? now he's got that going for him. And if you really want to call the Empire an empire that he inherited, <laughs> mm-hmm. we can go with that. But... You know, like I said, he did kind of Forrest Gump his way into it. Yeah. But then he also ran up against this.
0: Yeah, he's up against Philip, who's one of the top ten most effective medieval monarchs mm-hmm. in Europe, easily. So, in effect, a state of stalemate existed between France and England at this time, and and the greater picture barely changed. It is a cold war that goes hot from time to time.
1: If I had to pick a way to describe yeah, it. Yeah, that's that's yeah. Okay, I'll go with that. Because they were constantly in a state of war, but there was very few there were very yeah. few engagements. Yeah,
0: and, and a lot of these a lot of the war is these aren't battles in open field. Mm-hmm. These are raids, these are sieges that even the sieges, we're not talking constant bombardments and arrows and everything going back and forth. It's surrounding a castle, sitting outside it and waiting it, until they surrender.
1: Yeah. And just because eventually they're just going to surrender. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, your so, biggest
0: weapon in a siege soon can become oh, hunger, thirst, oh yeah, disease. For sure,
1: disease. Disease. Um, that's another thing about John is John was really good at that. He was, was very good at, that. good at that. He was good at that. He was patient in a siege. And then they talk about you know he's John's soft sword because you know he wasn't he wasn't the the most martial guy in the Middle Ages. Or he couldn't go to boner. Yeah, it could be the boner. He, had a, bunch it's, of, it's, he it's, had a bunch of kids and a bunch of mistresses. He could. It, it, he could. It just depends Again, on how is, long he could have the boner. But you know, know, that's what it, happens. Yeah. Whenever you die, people don't like you. They talk about your boner. This is magic. Like, Paris being in gross mode is like what it, it is. Like that, now that Hitler has a, uh, a penis now. Yeah. Like, who, the hell, who the fuck's going to check on that? But it's Hitler and nobody cares. No. <laughs> and he's dead. So yeah. fuck him. Yeah. Micropenis. But (laughs) Philip Augustus wasn't out there leading armies. No. He was doing the same thing. And Philip Augustus, like we just said, one of the top 10 monarchs in continental Europe. King John, not Not, quite the same.
0: (laughs) Not (laughs) history history remembers him differently. So, in addition to everything going on against the French, John also has to contend with his neighbors in the British Isles the Scots, the Welsh, and the Irish. Now, John's relationship with Scotland was mostly friendly until in 1209 when it was rumored that William the Lion, Scotland's king, was allying himself with Philip of France, something that came to be called the Old Alliance. John responded with his usual calm and reserve and immediately launches an invasion of Scotland. And by the way, this John is, is running so many military campaigns at the same time, he's spending so much money. This stuff is expensive. You have to pay your knights. You have to pay their soldiers. You have to... And where, do the, where does the money come from? Right. It comes from taxes. And he's constantly playing catch-up, trying to get more money. So in the grand scheme of Anglo-Scottish conflict, this event was a fairly bloodless one. Um, basically, moved an army into Scotland. There were really no battles. I don't think there were even any significant sieges, no raiding...
1: Yeah, just the fact that the army was there seemed to be enough to kind of put that to rest.
0: Yeah, and it ends up resulting in a treaty that gives John control over William's daughters, over who they get to marry, Mm -hmm. and comes with a large cash payment. Now, this crippled William's power and essentially removed him as a threat for the next several years. And as far as relations with the Welsh, this was a territory where English royal power was, let's say, unevenly applied. Whilst John would try to maintain a close relationship with both the independent-minded Norman lords within Welsh lands and the Welsh princes who ruled their own lands as a vassal state, visiting every year and even marrying off an illegitimate daughter to the Welsh Prince Llewellyn the Great, John would spend his entire reign having to contend with their shifting loyalties and always keeping an eye out for either an attack from rebellious Welsh lords or an opportunity to solidify his control over the region. Again, this is opening up another front. And then, as always, there are the Irish. Essentially an English colony, John was uh, technically the Lord of Ireland and had been since 1177 when he was only 10 years old. Now, he would draw on Ireland's resources to fight Philip in France and did his best to manipulate both sides in the constant warring between the Anglo Norman settlers and the indigenous Irish chieftains. Now, Ireland was the one place during John's reign where he actually managed to increase his holdings. And by 1210, he'd nearly doubled the amount of territory held at the beginning of his reign. Now, this is mostly due to effective nobles he had in place there. John is not in Ireland running these campaigns, but he has good knights running the campaigns on his behalf. Until 1210. Now, he has a lot of Anglo-Norman lords who get a little too independent in their thinking, and in 1210, he crosses over to Ireland with a large army to put these lords in their place, and he drafts a new charter ordering compliance with English laws and customs in Ireland. Now, he may have used this force to go to, to go on to apply these laws to the entire island, but he stopped short. He has to cut off the campaign because of more conflict erupting with his barons at home, and so these laws would be restricted to the area they call the Pale, or the area of Ireland under Anglo-Norman control, and this is where we get the phrase beyond the pale from. Of all the troubles that plagued John during the middle part of his reign, though, the greatest would come in the form of the Church. Specifically, Pope Innocent III. Innocent was, simply put, a real hard ass. His entire raison d'etre seemed to be bringing the crowned heads of Europe to heel. Now, we talked in the last episode about the balance of power in the medieval period between Europe's temporal rulers and the Church, And Innocent was determined to shift that balance in the church's favor. So on July 13th, 1205, John's Archbishop of Canterbury, Hubert Walter, died. Now John favored John de Grey, Bishop of Norwich, and an ardent supporter of the king as his successor, but the monks of Canterbury's cathedral chapter claimed the right of electing a new archbishop. To complicate matters further, a council of bishops claimed their right to elect the new archbishop as well. Now, the chapter-elected Reginald, their sub-prior, and informed the papacy of their decision, but John, threatening violence, forced them to change their decision to support John de Grey. Innocent decided that he was going to be the one to have the final say, and appointed his own man, Stephen Langton. Now, John refused to consent to Langton's appointment, but the Vatican consecrated Langton anyway in June of 1207. Now, incensed about what he perceived to be an, an attack on his customary royal right to influence the election, John physically barred Blankton from entering England and seized thousands of acres of land belonging to the Archbishopric and the papacy. Uh, do you remember how much we talked Well, in the last episode, we talked about how much uh, 20, land the church 26% owned? 26% or something yeah, like that. 33,000 square miles. This is the pretty much the entire land area of Scotland within the Kingdom of England's holdings at this time. To, to put that together, that is Maryland, Delaware, and the entire northern half of Virginia. That is a lot of land.
1: Yeah, it really is.
0: Within a kingdom the size of England. So yeah, over over a quarter of English land belonged to the church. So Innocent countered in March 1208 by placing the entirety of the Kingdom of England under a papal interdict, prohibiting clergy from conducting any religious services with the exception of baptism and confession, which John then treated like a papal declaration of war. He responds by seizing the lands and property of all clergy who refused to conduct services and all estates linked to Innocent himself. He arrested the concubines that many clergy kept for themselves. He forced many institutions to pay heavy bribes and fines to prevent violent attacks against them. And he seized the lands of clergy who had fled England. Innocent retaliated by finally excommunicating John in November of 1209. Excommunication is a big deal, Because it means that John and the Kingdom of England are officially cut off from access to God by decree of the Pope. This means you are no longer walking in the light of God, and until you do something that removes the writ of excommunication, you and your entire kingdom are damned. Now, no layperson in England could receive communion, baptism, or any of the other sacraments, nor were burials of laypeople allowed on consecrated ground. John's legitimacy in the eyes of God was removed and all good Christian princes were encouraged to remove him from his throne, which leaves John even more vulnerable to rebellion and overthrow. John responded by continuing to take the wealth of the church in England with figures estimating that 15% of the annual income of England was coming from the theft of church property or the sale of church lands to John's supporters. By 1213, it was estimated that John had pillaged over 100,000 marks worth of silver from the Church worth the equivalent of over $200 billion in today's money. That is a lot. Now, by 1213, however, John began, began to get an impending sense of vulnerability. Philip of France is making more noise about raising a massive army to invade England, and many of John's barons, including members of his own household, are on the cusp of rising in a new revolt. The chronicler Matthew Paris, writing in the later 13th century, tells a story of what John does as a reaction. Saying that he was so desperate for help that he wrote to Muhammad al-Nasir, the caliph of Morocco and Muslim Spain, pleading for help. Now, in return for military and financial assistance, he offers to convert the entirety of England to Islam, making England a Muslim state. Good lord. <laughs> Which that's is,
1: that's exactly what Boris Johnson said was happening last month. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, and he's right about everything. <laughs> uh, you ever watch uh, footage of England's Parliament? I love it. It's like C-SPAN meets Jerry Springer. It's, it's awesome. It's so funny. It's like, so great.
1: The other day when the dude just straight up changed parties in the middle of a, like, it, just, it was like, nah. <laughs> and I do declare that the Honorable Gentleman <laughs> is like, an absolute wank stain. <laughs> I like, love whatever, like, it's so good. somebody makes a big show of just putting their feet up. <laughs> Like, they stretch way out and kick yep. their feet up on the desk just to let you know they really don't give a shit about what you're saying. <laughs> so, Muhammad al-Nasir, the Caliph, was apparently
0: so disgusted by John's groveling plea that he sent the envoys away, <laughs> basically telling them, just, no!
1: Yeah, absolutely not. No, this is stupid. no, 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 no. liar. <laughs> no, but this is a, a cool what-if
0: moment. Because, remember, th- there's, there's... Yeah. Between England's lands, especially in Aquitaine, and Muslim Spain, there is a strip of territory, maybe eighty miles wide, in Castile. Yeah, you know the one remaining Christian kingdom in Spain, and it. it could you imagine if that
1: happened? That'd be nuts. I mean, you history as we know happened? would be wildly different. Wildly different. I yeah. mean,
0: we're, we're talking the butterfly effect in the macro. Mm-hmm. It's it's insane.
1: Yeah. I mean, you got to think of all the different, like every single alliance from that point on is different. Every single alliance, and then
0: you see what happens with, you know, the the where does colonization age. go? Yeah, right. I mean, what it,
1: happens there? It's insane. Because I mean, you're also inviting a lot, yeah. a lot more war, a lot more open warfare. Uh, it's yeah, it's gonna yeah. be well. The the great, great Protest, the great
0: Protestant schism
1: changes completely. Yeah. Man. The, the face of all that changes. Wow. You thought the man in the high castle was good TV. Yeah. Just wait. <laughs> yeah. Now it's going to be the man in the high mosque. The man in the high minaret. <laughs> we're, we're, we're already writing it. It's copyrighted. If yeah. You, if I see that,
0: you're, you're done. I'm suing you. This is now mine and Chris's intellectual property. Yep. We're going to make millions. OP, baby. Uh, now, unfortunately, this is written by Matthew Paris, And Matthew Paris has a bit of a... He's he's writing about fifty year, 50 years, maybe 60 years after this point he has a bit of a problem with veracity over the great scale of his his chronicles he, and he's a fantastic he, he writes in a with a fantastic flourish i mean he's a great storyteller on the written page and, but unfortunately because it's matthew paris we have no idea if this story is actually true mm-hmm. but if it is who oh boy. i mean that it, it, that's insane to think about I love
1: that. I also like the dude was just like, you know what, like, get fucked. Yeah, get, get, get out of here. <laughs> get away from me. What are you doing, man? Come on. So, under you, the. You deal with France. I don't give a shit about France anymore. <laughs> I got mountains.
0: So, under the mounting pressure, John finally caved and agrees to terms for reconciliation with Innocent III. He recognizes papal supremacy over his throne, which is a big thing. He accepts Stephen Langton as the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he agrees to pay back all of the stolen money to the church, including in uh, in addition to a yearly feudal fee of 1,000 marks of silver, about $3 billion today. Innocent turns on a dime and and suddenly becomes one of John's biggest advocates for the rest of his reign and called on Philip to back down from his invasion plans. John followed through with his payments for about a year, Leaving the vast majority of the reparations unpaid, but Innocent didn't really seem to care. Now, 1214 comes about, and it brings one final roll of the dice for John to win back his lost territories in France. He had worked alliances with Flanders and the Holy Roman Empire, both large, rich territories. He'd hired many mercenaries with his ill gotten gains from the church. He'd regained papal favor, and he had more troops in his disposal than at any other time since his loss of the French territories. He still had to increase tax demands on his barons in order to raise the funds and supply the army, and this cost—and this would go on to cost him. When the army set off in February of 1214, many of his barons refused to show up with their men. Now initially, the campaign was successful, recapturing most of Anjou from Philip and nearly trapping the forces of the French Prince Louis. But everything began to stall out. With many of the nobles abandoning the campaign, or refusing to advance alongside the king on the battlefield, citing his haughty manner and habit of insulting them constantly. Again, <coughs> again, this a is a of, habit that a comes lot back the to the problems constantly. that he
1: has are just because he won't stop being mean to people. Yeah,
0: he won't stop just being a dick.
1: He just won't stop being mean to people for no reason. He's it's just, just being that guy. Mean.
0: Well, we all know somebody who just is constantly talking shit. Yeah, and and if you don't if you don't know somebody who's always all, always talking shit, you're it probably might be that you. person. Yeah. And this gets him in trouble. Just stepped right on the dog's head. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> so the death blow is delivered on July twenty seventh, twelve fourteen, when Philip's army met the forces of Otto the Sixth, Holy Roman Emperor, at the Battle of Bouvines in Flanders. Seven thousand French knights and men at arms smashed a force of ten thousand Flemish, English, and German soldiers, slaughtering thousands and scattering the rest. This is one of those rare moments where the armies do meet in the field. And this was a moment of no mercy. I mean, these aren't armies. The French charge, and they just crush the enemy. Yeah, they blew right through them. So, with the main threat to Philip destroyed, John's other forces are driven into retreat, and all the gains of the campaign are erased. A peace agreement is quickly signed, but all hope of the restoration of the Angevin Empire under John had disappeared. He is now no longer going to be in a position to get his kingdom back to the size it was when he took the throne. When he returned to England, he comes back to a country on the brink of war with itself, and his position was more precarious than it had ever been. His coffers were empty, his barons are set to revolt against him, and it looked as though royal power in England would be forever altered. The final chapter in the reign of King John I was about to begin and it would be the most tumultuous and influential chapter yet and we'll hear it all all about it next time in the conclusion of our series
1: on bad king john so yeah that's part 2 of john man this guy's something else and like i like i said the, the one thing that i definitely noticed more than anything else is he ran into two kinds of luck yeah and that i mean whenever he every game that he made in a decade-long campaign was gone in a week. Mm-hmm. In a week, yeah. He, he's it's it's almost it, it's like Sisyphus with
0: the boulder. He's pushing and pushing and pushing mm-hmm. and pushing slowly, and he's straining to get it up to the hill. And he gets it to the top, and, and within right seconds, it's rolled back down to the bottom.
1: Right back down.
0: But it's also, the thing about John is he also kind of seems to be a bit of a maker of his own bad luck. Yeah,
1: he's not exactly a leader of men. Like He's, he's responsible for a lot of this. Yeah, and his,
0: his character and his, his ways at court and his ways of dealing with the guys that he is reliant upon to provide his military force and his, and his money. I mean, that's the thing. If you are the king, every bit of power you have comes upwards through the nobility in a feudal society. And you have to keep these guys happy, or else you're you're stuck. Your ass is in the wind. And yeah, I it, it just seems that John is the kind of guy who yeah, he had some genuine bad luck, but he had a lot of luck that he made. I think. That's that's how I see it. But in part three, we're even gonna see that go even further.
1: Yeah, it's it's a whole thing. Three yeah. is a whole situation. I mean, it still technically has ramifications today.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah absolutely so yeah so we'll get
1: back to you next time with part 3 of Bad King John uh, before we do wrap uh, apparently there is no difference between a Ren Fair and a Ren Fest oh good to uh, know Pittsburgh has a festival I've been calling it a fair this whole time
0: it, I guess it's just what they it's want to the call themselves
1: Renaissance Festival uh, there are variant spellings uh, if I go to a Renaissance Fair and it's spelled F-E-Y-R-E like come on now you're stretching even by that <laughs> F-E-Y-R-E... Ugh. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's not even like the Anglo-French. Isn't that like, that?
0: Isn't that that festival that Ludicrous had on that island?
1: Oh man, we already did that episode. Oh uh, yeah. Murder. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, that dude's out of jail now. That Billy guy. Yeah. What the fuck? When are you I know to get the get, like, other guy. The guy years? that said he was going to suck dick for water is doing those cameo videos for like five hundred yeah. bucks, like <laughs> bucks a five hundred bucks piece. Like, come on now, come on now. So I tell you what, you can do for five hundred bucks, pal. <laughs> <laughs> Five hundred bucks gets you a lot of water, right?
0: <laughs> so, yeah. Thanks again to everybody who came out to the blood drive, uh, everybody who and donated, or uh, even just came out to show their support. Thank you to everybody again who came out to our tailgate in memory of Jason Rollison. A huge, huge thing. It was a. We were ruminating on this yesterday. It was a. It was a long day. It was emotionally a complicated day. We were all pretty drained by the end of it, but it did feel good knowing that we put a lot of good out into the world. Fuck that. Uh, yesterday sorely needs it. Yesterday
1: sucked and yesterday <laughs> still sucks. Yeah, that's. You know, Jason was very close to me and it, it always hurts, even yeah. when you do good. I guess it takes some of the sting out of it, but yeah, he was my buddy. It really, it just. Yeah, it does. He, he helped us a lot. I mean, he, I, he helped I still us a lot the with the production that, that I sent here. Yeah, he helped you us know? a lot with the production of this podcast.
0: And he, when we yeah, were I, I it would started. ask him weird yeah.
1: questions that you know, 1230 in the morning and he'd get back to me. So,
0: yeah. Um, yeah. So he gave us a lot of support, a lot of support. Um, and, and speaking of support, um, if you'd like to support us, uh, with what we do, uh, you can go to www.patreon.com slash TRR pod. Um, we can also find us on social media. Chris, you want to hit him with the social media deets?
1: Yeah. If you'd like to find us online, you can find us at podcast TRR on Instagram uh i'm sorry we're at trr pod on instagram we are at podcast trr on uh twitter because like we said before that guy stole it and doesn't use it yep uh no posts nothing yeah you can find us on on facebook uh if you have any concerns any questions anything you'd like to add anything you'd like to suggest please hit us up at trrpod at gmail.com we look forward to hearing from you there uh i never did get back from any of those professors Whenever I <laughs> whatever I, st- what did I start the, the thing with, what up? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, your traditional yeah, greeting within do academia. Maybe I'll once a year on the anniversary of it. Yeah. Because it, it, I, I think it was time sensitive. I'll just send it out to the same exact people. <laughs> the same mailing list. I'll just forward it.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks to everybody who supports us on Patreon. Uh, thanks also to the Bloody Semen for uh, providing... a. Uh, Providing the music that we use on this podcast, those great, great tunes. Definitely go out and support them, buy their music. Um, I'd like to say a quick rest in peace. I wanted to do this last week when it was a little fresher, but a big RIP to Sid Haig. Yeah, what a yeah, guy! That what sucked. a guy! What an actor! What a performer! Uh, given a new lease on his career in those Rob Zombie movies, Captain Spaulding him, fucking self. What an incredible! It was incredible funny to performer. see
1: the people that were posting the yeah. the tributes to him people that I never knew he worked with in anything like the guy had a, a really a really impressive impact yeah. on the acting community for being basically a bit guy forever Yeah, you know, he was in Pittsburgh a couple years ago and boy he was not well then
0: no no but hey you know what he's left a, a hell of a legacy a yeah. hell of a legacy of work so yeah uh, Sid Haig swirling in the heavens man we're gonna miss you buddy so yeah that'll wrap us up this time Catch us on the next episode for part three, our conclusion on Bad King John. And until then, hold fast.
1: Fates are seen.